0: Reading, we will be reading this morning from Revelation 21, and verses 1 through 8, and then on to Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Okay, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And now we move on to chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed,
1: Thanks, Alice. Well, we've been working our way through this series that we've been calling The Gospel. It's even more than you hoped. And I hope that as we've been going through it, you've seen that. That this gospel of Jesus Christ is richer and fuller and more glorious and more exciting and more hopeful and more joyful than you could have imagined. And today, I think, is really the culmination of that joy. We're going to have a couple more weeks on this series, but we're going to move past the four chapters and move. We're going to do one week on what is the gospel and sanctification. And we're also going to do a week on the gospel and the kingdom, the kingdom of God language we find all throughout the New Testament, and the Gospels. But we've been working our way these first four weeks through these four chapters of the Gospel story. You see them popping up in front again for, uh, for another time today. We we're attempting, remember, to weave together two views of the Gospel. The one is the street view, where we view things on a day-to-day, down-to-earth, detailed view of all things. And in that view, our chapters have been God, man, Christ, and today response. That's the gospel on the street view. And by the end of this four weeks, if you can unpack even a little bit of what we've talked about with God, man, Christ, and response, you have enough there that you could share the gospel with uh, someone. The second view was the Google Earth view. Remember, that was the 10,000-foot view. We looked at pictures of Canby from Google Earth. This is the larger, the grander, the sweeping epic story of the entire Bible. And the four chapters that coincide with that were creation, fall, redemption, which we talked about last week, and today, restoration, or recreation, or renewal. Chapter 4 of the Gospel story is a look at, first today, the street view response of individual hearts to the Gospel, and a future forward look, then, to the Google Earth view of the restoration of all things. So that's the two things we're going to try to unpack today in this message as we answer the question for today is, how can I be made right? We're going to do that by looking at two sides of the gospel coin first, of repentance and faith. We're also going to look towards the end of time and the culmination of all things to see four realities about the coming restoration. So that's where we're going. That's where we're headed today as we unpack this chapter four. So you've got your outline there. Hopefully you got your Bible too, whether it's on a phone or a book or tablet, and open to Revelation 21. As Let's look at the street view response to the gospel. The street view response. Remember, we talked a couple weeks back, the gospel is good news, not good advice. Good news that the battle has been won at the battlefield of the cross, And good news that is true and objective like this demands some kind of response. If it really happened that Christ died, that Christ rose, it demands some kind of response. One pastor put it like this, true gospel preaching always changes the heart. It either awakens it or hardens it. Or uh, as some are drawn towards it, and softened by the Spirit, others find it foolish and silly, First Corinthians even says. Or as the Puritans put it, I like their phrase, they're always so good with words, even if sometimes a bit wordy. It said They said, the same sun that hardens the clay melts the ice. Kind of the same idea. It's going to have some impact, some kind of response. If it's true gospel preaching, it's going to harden someone some way or soften them another way. So let's unpack a bit more by looking at the street view response today now of repentance and faith. What are those two things? Here's what we're going to see as we look at this gospel. Uh, the, The first one here is that the gospel always produces a response, as we just said, of either hardening of the heart or a heart of repentance and faith. You can't actually now, if this is the reality of the gospel, and that there always is some kind of response, you can't actually present the gospel without implying a response. I mean, even if you never get around to saying, raise your hand or pray a prayer, you cannot present the true gospel without implying a response. When chapter 3 that we talked about of our series contains the fact that Christ laid down his life for sinners on the cross, and then we say in the gospel that he is the only way, To present that is to imply we're looking for a response. Or better, God's looking for a response. And when you hear that message of true gospel preaching, you have to reject the gospel. You have to step over the body of Jesus. You have to. There's some rejection or there's some response that has to take place to the gospel. There's no soft rejection of the gospel when you use words like, Repentance and faith, and actually explain them. You can't softly reject those concepts. You're either hardened against it, as we said, or, or softened through it by the power of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians says this For the word of the cross, it's folly. There's that hardened response. Folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, here's the softened response it's the power of God. Which one is it for you this morning? Which one is it? If you're a regular attender here, my guess is that it is doing a softening effect because you keep coming back to hear this gospel. But by preaching repentance and faith, that that invitation is bound up in the gospel. The ask, the the, the sought-out response in the gospel is, God wants you to repent and believe. That is the message. That is the, what we're looking for in the individual personal response to hearing. And Jesus began his ministry. If you remember back, we went through the Gospel of Mark a couple years back, and one of the very first things he says is, "The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe." There's those two words: repent and trust, or have faith. Repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. Jesus begins these words by making it imperative, two sides, you might call them a gospel coin, repentance and faith. This is a cheap. I've pulled this out before, I think. It's cheap. It's not real. It was in a Wheaties box in 1994. It's been in my wallet ever since because it always served as a good visual. But we're talking about two sides of a coin. It's still got the bend in it where a buddy of mine took it out of my hands in high school and put it in one of the vents in the lockers and tried to snap it in two. But that's high school, so but the marks are still there. Um, Two sides of a gospel coin. That's what we're talking about today. Repentance and faith. And we've not always used these words well in our gospel presentations. In the church, even. In the evangelical church. And at times, we've given a false assurance to people as these words have been either forgotten, not used, and then given an over reliance to what's been traditionally called the sinner's prayer. I'm gonna talk a little bit about that this morning. How the words of repentance and faith have kind of disappeared a little bit. May even ruffle a few feathers this morning, but that's okay. That's kind of what we tend to do from time to time as we wrestle with truth and wrestle with God. But do you know the sinner's prayer of asking Jesus in your heart? Now, it's not anti biblical. I want you to hear that. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's also not very biblical. Do you know that? It can be fuzzy and unclear, and actually, in some ways, at times, unhelpful. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be responsive prayer to the gospel. I'm not saying that. So please hear me today. I'm not saying we don't pray in response to hearing the gospel. Of course, And of course, through regeneration, through being born again, in some sense, Jesus comes to reside in our hearts. Because that's been the the wording of the sinner's prayer, Jesus, please come into my heart. So in some sense, Jesus does reside in our hearts. Paul prayed in Ephesians 3.17 that Christ would dwell in our hearts. But Paul in Ephesians is writing already to believers who have already received Christ. He's not writing about personal conversion, but close, intimate fellowship and guidance by Jesus. Another verse that's been used. Probably the most misused, misunderstood verse in all the Bible when it comes to conversion. Revelation 3.20. Do you know it? I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. If you actually look at this verse in context, this verse doesn't mention the heart at all. And it's actually written to the Laodicean church. It's not even a verse about conversion, but it's about a church filled with believers needing to repent of some ongoing sin in their church. Now, of course, we know the Spirit does give us a new heart. This is a heart thing, the gospel. He has to. We're born spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. And enemies of God. So repentance and faith and and prayer that would accompany those things then are a, a good thing. And they're fruit of the Spirit's initial work already in the heart. It's like Jesus said in John 3 to Nicodemus. Take a look at these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born, born again, born of water and spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, I said to you, he said to Nicodemus, that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying there, That this conversion, this being born again, it's mysterious. It's like the wind. We don't know who it will blow upon. We don't know why at certain times. But when the Spirit does in the Gospel, a decision of repentance and faith comes from that. So yes, do you exercise your will? Yes. Do you make a decision for Christ? Yes. But it's accompanying a work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus talks about. That's born again. And that has to take place for those who are spiritually dead, as Paul describes. A decision of repentance and faith. So what are these two realities? Because they're important. And you can, we all know, we know people that have said a sinner's prayer, and yet there's never any fruit in their life. Or there was for a little while, like the rocky and different types of soil that the seed fell on, and it looked like it was springing up, and then it was gone. So if, if it's not just in some magical prayer, what is our salvation based upon? It's these two words, repentance and faith. We're going to pack these quickly because I don't want to miss the Google view as well today because I think that's the one we're more unfamiliar with. Well, just as we have two sides of a coin as we look at Christ taking our sin on himself and on the other flip side giving us his righteousness, our response has two sides as well repentance first let's talk about that repentance is as described by peter as a turning away a, a 180 uh, a u-turn we don't do many of those in oregon but the, a u-turn that's one of the first things i learned when i moved here is you you only do a u-turn if it says to do it and where i came from you do it unless it says not to do it that was a quick rude awakening like people were going, like what are you doing like i didn't know Switch my California license plate to organ plate really quick. Um, <laughs> U-turn. That's repentance. Acts 3.19 says, Peter said, Repent, therefore, and turn back. There it is. A U-turn. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Repentance is not an addition or an add-on or something you add to your spiritual life. It's absolutely critical. It's one of the two sides of the coin. You must Repent as a follower of Jesus. Repentance is said in other places in the Bible to lead to life and to escaping, perishing. It's one thing to accept Jesus as Savior. He paid for my sins. But another component that's got to go with that is accepting him as Lord in your life. Savior and Lord. Not just Savior. Savior and Lord. That he is King And you must see your sin for what it is. Disown it. Turn from it is what repentance is. In a renewed trust and effort to forsake it by God's strength. Now that doesn't mean you instantly stop sinning, does it? How many still struggle with sin? That's all of us. Every single one of us. It doesn't mean you instantly stop sinning. We will fight that battle until we die. But here's what it does mean you no longer can live in in peace with your sin. You can't live in peace or arm-in-arm or hand-in-hand with your sin anymore. You take on the armor of God to fight against it. You declare war on your sin. The Puritans called it, again, another great phrase they had, the mortification of sin, the death of sin, the fighting sin, the battle against sin. And that, first and foremost, is a heart attitude an attitude towards your sin. So, you still see remaining sin in your life. Don't doubt that you haven't truly repented or that you're not a believer. That's not what I'm saying. But if you find yourself living at peace with your sin and just excusing it, or if somebody ever says to you, have you ever thought about that in your life and you find yourself, "Eh, you know, it doesn't really bother me, and you know the Word declares it, God's Word declares it, sin, that you should be concerned about if you're at peace with your sin. That's why it's so serious, that when someone professes Christ as Savior, if they, like I said, excuses their sin or won't repent of them, when called on by fellow Christians to do so, it's bad fruit that points to the fact that you may not actually be born again if you can live at peace with your sin. Now, there's varying degrees of that at times in our life, but if you see an ongoing pattern of that, you should be concerned. The Bible says you should be concerned. Well, if we're turning from our sin in battle, if was what repentance is, the other side of the coin then, when you do a U-turn, it's to go towards what you've missed, right? Or towards what you've passed, what you always needed, your destination you wanted to go to. The other side of the coin in the gospel is repentance and faith. This is faith. Let's take a look at it. It's not just a blind trust. Many have described religion that way or Christianity that way. This blind leap of faith that you're just kind of ignorant of what really is out there. You don't really care. You're just going to trust it because I'm going to have faith and I'm going to have faith and I'm going to have faith. It's not just belief for belief's sake or belief in belief or trusting in trust. No, it is a rock-solid transferring of the weight of your life based on real promises and a real resurrection and transferring that weight of your life to Jesus. That's faith. That's not blind at all. That's not ignorant or misinformed at all. It's not blind faith. It's trusting that when Jesus says he'll pay for your sins, that he actually does and did. When Jesus says he'll give you a righteous verdict from his life and his righteousness, that he will. That's what faith is. It's a magnificent exchange He gets my sins, I get his righteousness, and I'm going to trust that God is going to accept me on that basis. That's faith, the other side of the coin. That's why we say faith alone. That's why we say Jesus saves, not our works or our church attendance. And I would even go so far as to say that even the quality of your repentance and faith doesn't actually save you. Some of you might be despairing. You hear this, repentance and faith, if it's that important... Sometimes my faith is weak. Isn't yours? Sometimes my repentance is spotty at best and half-hearted. How do we know that? Because I find myself doing the same sin again. If I perfectly repented of it, I wouldn't ever do it again. I would truly turn from it. So what does that mean? Are we in trouble? If the quality of our repentance and our faith that sometimes feels short-lived, that's why we need to hear this. Not the quality, but the object of your faith. You'll see a slide popping up here. It says this. It's not the quality of our faith that even saves us. It's the object of our faith that saves us. That's why we say Christ alone. It's Jesus who saves alone, period. That's the end of the sentence. That's it. Now, some modicum of true faith, yes, has to be there. Given as a gift by the Spirit. But as we wrestle with it throughout our life, It's Christ alone who saves. So when you're doubting, what do you do? You go and say, it's not even the quality of my faith and repentance that saves me. It's Jesus who saves me. And you reiterate that, and you preach it to yourself again and to each other. That's the street view. That's the response God is looking for. That's what I'm hoping each and every one of us in here has done. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's transition Because we're trying to weave both today. I know we're doing it kind of quick today. But let's transition to the 10,000-foot view now. We're going to look at four things about this. The Google Earth view of restoration and why this matters. There is nothing like the topic of the eschatology, it's called, or end times to make conversations kind of go all kinds of directions. It's a topic that brings out a lot of passion for people, and yet the reality is we have to base a lot of our views on conjecture. We really, I mean, there's all kinds of different views when it comes to eschatology, and we will get into those at at Bethany Church. Our our series today is not intended to do that, to unpack a millennial view, but it's intended to unpack what is it like at the end of time, what is our destination. What's the transformation that Jesus will bring? And this would be, what we're going to talk about today is what pretty much everybody who's a Christian would say, yeah, this is probably something we can all get behind and agree on. We're looking, as we have been in this series, the intent has not been to look at the trees but the forests in this series, the big kind of grand story of the Bible. So we're not coming to Revelation 21 today. There's times and places for that, to look at seasons and dates and times. But we're looking at the final state of things and why this matters in the gospel we want to look at the primary stuff of the end times today is that what's what this series has been for we're going to look first at the fact that he will return not necessarily when because that's where we get into conjecture but that he will christ will return so why do these end times things matter for your life for where we're going It matters because this is our future. This is what's coming. This is your future. This is my future. This is all our future if we are followers of Jesus Christ. This is where all things are heading. This is where Jesus is taking history, you could say, in other words. It's the culmination of the gospel and Jesus' work. So we're going to look at four realities of the Restoration. It's chapter four. It's the final, final chapter here. Or the final countdown. I'm We have that song playing during this uh, message today. The final countdown. Where are we going? What happens when I see somebody bobbing their head? They're, listening, they're thinking of that song, the final countdown. We're going to look at these four realities of the coming restoration. That's not all of them there is. We, we could not do that today or even in one series, the realities of the restoration. But let's look at a few. Here we go. Our first reality is this one. Future restoration is real and it's physical and it's more than anything, heaven coming to earth. It's real, it's physical, and in some glorious way, heaven and earth are going to meet back up and heaven is going to come towards us. You know, many of us as Christians have even uh, uh, as Christians even have a, maybe a fuzzy view, or uh, even an incorrect view that heaven is our the final destination for believers. Think through what you think of uh, the end of time. For you, have you thought and, and and been settled that heaven is your final destination as a believer? Probably most of us, probably myself included. Maybe you can remember pop culture representations of of, of heaven in cartoons and movies. For many of us, heaven is this. For many people in the world, it's this idea of disembodied, kind of ethereal, wispy, cloud-filled, kind of gates of heaven like this. That's kind of our idea. That's heaven. Or how it's been portrayed in cartoons where we get white robes and we jump from cloud to cloud and an eternal praise set playing harps. Isn't that That's it. Now, we love singing. We are going to sing in heaven songs like we've never sung before. We are going to have instruments and sounds that you've never heard on earth. I guarantee it. We have to. I mean, if if the Lord created music, we will hear things we've never heard before. And praise is great. But you can praise God other ways than singing, can't you? (laughs) Or maybe like this guy, you viewed heaven. That's how I grew up. I grew up in that era. He actually looks bored. Do you think he'll be bored in heaven? I don't know, but the way we've presented it to people and the way we've even thought about it as Christians at times is kind of something that most people say, like, singing forever, like, in one room, all of us? Does that sound really exciting? Yeah, no, okay. All right, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be more than that, right? Earth has more activity than that. I'm sure heaven will. Well, let me just tell you this. Heaven is a real place right now. It's not ethereal. We can't necessarily get to it on our plane or see it necessarily, but it is a real place right now. It's not some collective uh, consciousness or mind place. No, it's a real place right now. Right now, Jesus is there with his body, and disembodied Christians are there because you leave behind your body, don't you? We know that. Disembodied Christians are there, but that is not our final destination. Heaven alone is not your final destination. It's a wonderful place. It's better than earth. It is with Jesus, but it is not your final destination. Did you know that? Revelation 21 says that heaven is not our final destination. Look at 21 verses 1 and 2. Read them to us today. Then I saw in his vision, John a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. That doesn't necessarily mean there's no water bodies in this place, but that the rebellion of the sea from Revelation was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A fi- a, our final destination is a renewed new heaven and new earth. That's our final destination. Really, it's the two coming together again like they were in the garden. It is a new heaven and a new earth. And the passage here says, in fact, that in some way, heaven comes down to us. Heaven comes down to a new earth. Whether that's whether after we're taken up or whether we're here as it comes Those are the different millennial views. But heaven comes down to us, and it actually won't be ethereal. It will be physical. Physical, like this thing, like the chair you're sitting on. Not wispy clouds will jump from, but physical. See, we Christians have actually fallen into the same Gnostic trap, is the word, Gnosticism, that other kind of spiritual religions fall into. What is that? What do I mean by that? That means that we kind of look at the spirit as good and material or matter as bad. We've fallen into that as Christians. We have Um, that the spirit is the kind of the good stuff and matter is bad. I've talked to somebody before, and he said to me, "You know, I could care less what you do with my body when I die. I'm gone. Like I could care less what you do with my body." Jesus died to redeem a physical body. It matters. If you can say that as a Christian. (laughs) who cares what you do with me? I'm gone anyways. You haven't quite grasped the fact that the new heaven is a new heaven and earth and it's physical and that Christ is redeeming the physical too. Let me ask you, God is going to redeem our bodies and transform them. If he's going to do that with our bodies and they're physical and they're going to be new, we'll talk about that in a minute, but do you think that he's just going to take all of created matter that he made and just kind of scrap it and throw it away? If he's going to redeem our bodies? Like a boy who looks at his airplane model and then realizes he put one thing in the wrong place. Is he just going to like throw the whole thing away? No, he's going to fix it. He's going to transform. He's going to make it what it was always meant to be. Or an architect who finds error in the plan, does he just take it, shred them up, and throw them away? They don't just throw everything away. They fix it. They transform it. They make it into what it was really meant to be. Do you think God is going to redeem and transform this earth into a new one? He is. Rather than just fully wipe it away, he will transform it and change it. Even the words used in Revelation 21 here, the passage, the verses we just read, new heaven and new earth, that word new. John could have used a word that meant Absolutely new in origin. But the word new he used actually means that it's new in quality or nature. It's new, yes. And oh, well, it'll be so much better than what we have now. But it's not a full scrapping of the old and remaking it in origin. It's a better. It's just better and much better. Not brand new, but transformed. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things shall, shall not be remembered or come in mind or Romans, the creation itself, that's the physical, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning, not just my body and your body and your heart and soul, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I hope this is exciting for you. I hope it—maybe even it's kind of a fresh way to think about heaven, new heaven and earth. Because actually the New Testament is much more concerned with what lies beyond heaven than heaven itself. Like I said, it's not our final destination. The New Testament is much more concerned with what lies beyond heaven. And that's Revelation 21 and 22. Jesus is coming with—coming back to earth. And with him, he's bringing that promised inheritance, which he's holding now in heaven— but he's bringing it and all the saints who've gone before, that it's all coming back. It's all coming to a new earth. heaven. He's bringing it with him, and it's going to be real. And it's going to be physical. It's a place where we will live and work and play and love and be together on a new heaven, new physical heaven and earth forever. That's what's coming. That's your final destination. I love what Christopher Ashe says about this. I think a quote's coming up. The the remaking of the physical world, this is what he's saying. This ensures that God wins. He made a good universe. That universe has been spoiled, but God has not given up on it. He does not say, "Well, well, that was a pity. I better start again. No, he will end the story with a good, real, physical cosmos that is the completion and perfection of his original creation. Nothing can stop him doing it. So that's our first reality. That's a big one, isn't it? That's our first reality. A real physical new heaven and earth is our final destination. Well, here's our second one it's that on that earth, you and I will have new physical bodies. As Christians, we have some confusion around this as well. We've kind of thought of, you know, uh, well, when we die, our spirit does leave our body and it does go somewhere. Heaven is a place, as we've said, it is a place. Um, and, our, and our spirits go there. But we're waiting for new bodies. Wherever they're at with Jesus right now, they don't have bodies. What, that's, what that is like or how they recognize each other, I don't have an answer for you in that. But I think, I think they are recognizable. You know, in restored creation, here's what this means. The new heaven and the new earth actually is not the pinnacle of what's coming. It's good it's, it's pretty good, but the pinnacle is going to be your new glorified body. That is going to be the pinnacle of the future, of what is to come. Creation was good. You and I, God said, are very good. That's going to be the pinnacle, this new glorified body. It's us. It's us. Romans 8 says we're waiting for the restoration of our bodies. Getting it back, but better. And each of us know, right, the older we get, that the body we have now is breaking down. Don't you know that? Yeah. I I, I mean, I just know that. We know it. The body we have is breaking down. No matter how hard you work out, no matter how healthy you eat or what Type of age-defying cream, whatever we do, you know, like all the things. It's a billions of dollar business on this that we can somehow think we can cheat. That I'll finally be the one who cheats death. There's, there's a Silicon Valley is thinking of all kinds of ways to try to do this. If you didn't know that or not, trying to cheat death, put your brain in a computer, and someday get a different body back. That's what they're trying to do. We're dying. That's the reality. And the frustration we experience with our body breaking down, that you feel like, man, if I could just get back to my 50s, 40s, 30s, oh, if I just that was the time. That was the time where I felt good. The, experience, the frustration you experience there points to the fact that you and I too, we're groaning, aren't we? Just like creation. We're groaning. We know we're waiting for our new body, as Paul said. That will never hurt, will never die, will never be injured, will never break down again. Never. No tears and all joy. But don't think it's just a slightly better version of yourself. Don't think that, that it's just a slightly bettered version. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 makes it clear that it's as different as like what a seed would be to like an oak tree. Don't think it's just a, you know, version 2.0. No, no, no. This is like way better. This weekend we had uh, Joe America's funeral here at church. Some of you were here. Some of you were able to come. And it was my, it was actually my first um, uh, open casket funeral that I've officiated. I've done multiple, but um, this is the first one with an open casket. And Joe was here in body. His body was here, but his spirit was gone. And his family, as they were here on that, mor- or that morning, they were right to come towards his casket and grieve over the body. The sting of death, yes, has been defeated, But we're still feeling it. The reality was right there laying in the casket. Still feeling the sting of death. But oh, when the resurrection comes, when the resurrection of your new body comes, then the sting of death will finally be gone forever. I don't know what that's going to be like, that new body. But I love the idea of what C.S. Lewis said at one place. He said, if you were to see now what a new creature was going to be like in the new heaven and earth, in the new glorified body, and perfected in all its holiness, you would be tempted to bow down and worship it in the here and now. I love that idea. Will we be God? No. God is always God. But man, what he's going to turn us into is going to be amazing. Amazing. You'll see spouses, you'll see friends, and you'll go, ah, That's what I always knew you could look like. I saw glimpses of it in you when God was working in and through you. You'll see each other as we were truly meant to be. Isn't that exciting? Does it give you some joy today and hope? As you break down, as we age... And those new bodies will move, they will sing, they will run, they will jump with a vitality and a beauty that we haven't even come close to experiencing here. You won't need kidneys to clean anymore, lungs won't have to filter out junk, your liver won't have to filter blood anymore, none of that. And with those new bodies, we will experience this third reality. Here it is, we will restore, be restored to rule a new creation that has been transformed, much like Adam and Eve. Eve who began back in chapter 1, week 1, in the garden as royal priests of a type, overseeing vice regents, also representing God as priest-like. They were never called priests, but they lived in that kind of role, ruling the earth and imaging God out to creation and creation back to God. In the future, heaven and earth, we will rule under God's authority and image Him perfectly where the first Adam failed. Revelation 5 says this, You have made them a kingdom and priests, that's us, to our God, that's rulers and priests, and they shall reign on earth forever. This is also C.S. Lewis's idea, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, where he says Narnia is waiting on the sons and daughters of Adam to come and rule. That's the idea. But this new creation will come at a terrible price. Day of Judgment. Day of Judgment has to purge it first, where verse 8 speaks of the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immortal, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The new creation will be purged of all sin and death. And those who haven't found restoration through repentance and faith will be resurrected too, but not to dance on clouds. (laughs) Resurrected to judgment. The final reality that we're going to look at this morning is the best one will be this. The dwelling place of God will be fully restored with men and women. Look at verse 3 of 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is fascinating. It is the sweeping epic of the entire Bible that he began with us in a garden, perfectly there in intimacy, in communion. As heaven and earth were together, as royal priests we lived there, but we lost it. We know in the fall Christ had to restore it and someday he's bringing them both back together. And we will live there again as royal priests with God's presence perfectly there. Let me see if I can help you understand this. I, I never do something like this. We never watch videos in our service. And, uh, I, but I just love this one so much that I thought it would be valuable for us to all see it. It's a five-minute video. We're going to close with it. I'll come back up and just say one or two things. But I, I just love how they do it. And it ties together so perfectly all four of the chapters we've just gone through. Take a look at this five-minute video from the Bible Project and then I'll wrap us up. Little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images, trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what Do you see how this is a bigger gospel? <laughs> do you see how this is just bigger than my personal salvation? It's not less than that. Please hear me. It's not less than that. It's bigger. You see, God, man, Christ, response, weaving together with creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. This is why Paul can say in Ephesians 1.10, take a look here, his purpose in Christ is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, all things in Jesus, things in heaven, and things on earth, which means our purpose is part of this plan your purpose is part of this plan. This blows out of the water the individualized Western view of faith and Christianity. It blows it out of the water. Church and our life together is not just about a spiritual tune-up or at meeting our needs. It's about the anticipation of a new human society on a new heaven and earth. That's the big story that you get to be part of here and now. And now we function like little, little, little outposts of that. Little outbreaking places where barriers can be broken down by grace through faith in Christ and, and pride can be destroyed by the, the cross and the exile of people being scattered by sin is being undone by this great ingathering. In That's the big gospel. This is who we are and this is why the gospel changes everything. Pray with me. Christ, what a big doing you are doing in the work of Jesus Christ. And it's been done, actually. You've done the work. You've purchased us at the cross. You've, you've bought us back. And now it's being played out in redeemed lives and hearts that come to you in repentance and faith. And, and now we begin, even now. We, we, we won't make heaven on earth. We can't do that ourselves. But we want to point towards it as we live in the here and now. And, and, and ultimately, you will break into this earth and create it new. So, Lord Jesus, help us see your work as bigger. Help us see our role in it as special. doesn't mean we have to do grand, sweeping things ourselves. Maybe it's just the day-to-day faithful living of loving our neighbor and loving our church that you're going to use to transform this earth. Thanks for everybody hanging in there on this long morning and just through this four weeks. Bless these chapters of the gospel in our hearts and minds. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.